Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. We're here today You're listening with to Talking Dr. To Barbara where we speak Oakley, with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art help and our teenagers learn of parenting Dr. Teenagers. Oakley is the I'm best-selling host, author Andy of Earl. A Mind for Numbers, and she is also the author of the new book, Uncommon Sense Teaching, Practical Insights in Brain Science to Help Students Learn. Barbara is a professor of engineering at Oakland University in Rochester, Michigan, and she teaches one of the world's most popular massive open online courses called Learning How to Learn. On today's episode, we're going to talk about working memory capacity, which peaks at age 15, what that means and why it matters. We're going to look at what the latest neuroscience shows about educational research, what parents can do to leverage these findings to help our teenagers get an edge in the classroom and set themselves up to be more effective learners for the rest of their lives. We're going to see what happens in the brain when students procrastinate and what parents can do to combat procrastination. We're also going to look at the two main modes of thinking in the human brain and a technique that you can teach your teenager to take advantage of switching between these two types of thinking when they're working on an important task. All that and much more is coming up on today's episode. Barbara, thank you so much for being on the show today. education and how people learn is a really interesting area to study. Uh, What got you interested in that and why do you think that it's so important for people to know about? So I got into education and learning because I was a professor of engineering and I was teaching my classes and One of my students found out about my sordid past as a terrible, terrible student, particularly in math and science while I was growing up. And he asked me how I changed my brain. And I thought about it. I I remember I wrote him a little email. Then I thought, you know, I think there's more than just an email in this. Yeah. I'm always interested in just sort of looking at at questions and seeing if I can answer them and see where the facts actually lead me. And so because of that, I'd been interested in various questions. And I had spent a number of years, even though I'm a professor of engineering, kind of uh, digging around in the neuroscientific and cognitive psychology literature. And so I had a pretty good feel for what was going on in those fields. I mean, of course, I'm not a a top-notch expert in them, but at the same time, 
if you know how to do research, which professors are, of engineering are supposed to be able to do, you at least know how to sift through and find out not only where the most interesting things are happening and what is happening, but also if you're looking at these fields coming at it from a completely different field, that meant that I could look with a very fresh perspective on these fields. And what's interesting is if you had grown up being trained in those disciplines, it's really hard for you to see where the gaps are yeah. and where, but anyway, so uh, he asked me this question and I, I thought, oh, you know, I like to write books. I like to get my head around a problem. So I spent several years working on a book called A Mind for Numbers. And it was, it was meant to be a book about how to do better when you're studying in STEM disciplines. I mean, science, technology, engineering, and math. But while I was writing this book, I, it really came out that this is actually a general book on learning. And indeed, my background is in, in, it started out in linguistics. I enlisted in the army right out of high school and went to the Defense Language Institute and spent my, my first years out of high school intensely studying and learning Russian. I ended up working as a Russian translator on Soviet trawlers. Uh, and so when I have a bit of wine, uh, it all comes back and I can swell <laughs> quite nicely. So, uh, uh, but anyway, that's what got me started. And I think what, what really got me interesting, in, interested in this whole educational area was the fact that some fresh perspectives were needed. And yeah. especially working with my colleague, Taryn Sanowski, who is one of the world's leading experts, not only in neuroscience, but in artificial intelligence, it's become clear to both of us that a lot of the great and innovative new breakthroughs that we are discovering about how we learn from the research in neuroscience, as well as cognitive psychology, is simply not being used or implemented or taken yeah. in by educators who, you know, bless our hearts, they have their own vested interest in how they have been trained. And so it's really hard to give all of that training up or to shift directions, particularly if what you have long been taught is actually completely incorrect. Um, you know, you'd rather just say, no, 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 I'm right, I'm right, I'm right. And so, right. Uh, so anyway, it's been a very, very interesting journey. One thing that you make a big deal about in this book is working memory and also um, sort of the differences between working memory and long-term memory. And you have this um, graph in here that I uh, thought was really fascinating about working memory capacity changing with age. And it looks like it sort of um, reaches its maximum around the middle of the teenage years, which I thought was pretty interesting because uh, a lot of times they're telling us how 
immature teenagers' brains are. And so here's a graph that shows at least one area of the t brain that gets pretty mature around the teenage years. So talk to me about working memory capacity. Why is it such a you know important thing um, and such a theme throughout your book? And what do parents need to know about it? Oh, a very good question. So that graph is thanks to Susan Gathercole and her colleagues. And it's an interesting idea that I think is important for us all to know is, so yeah. this graph shows how working memory increases as you mature. I should step back and explain what is working memory. Working memory is what you can hold temporarily in your prefrontal cortex. So it's like what you can hold temporarily in mind and manipulate too. So if I asked you to multiply 77 times 22, you probably could hold it in your working memory. And well, if I said 77 times 20, you could probably do it pretty easily or you know, with some thinking in your head. Yeah. And what you're doing is you're holding the 70, you're holding the 20, and you're manipulating those numbers a little bit. Yeah. So short-term memory is just, you remember the 70, you remember the 20. Working memory is like short-term memory, but you're manipulating things a little bit. But in any case, we often sort of a shorthand, we say, working memory can hold about four pieces of information in mind. Yeah. And so people often say, well, what do you mean by a piece of information? Yeah, exactly. It, since it could be a lot of different things, it's a little hard to quantify, but you can kind of think of it as a, like four concepts uh, or four balls of information or four, like you can, Let's say you've memorized and you can play a a short piece on the piano. So um, so you can bring that into mind um, sort of as a, you know, that little short set of chords into mind as one piece. And yeah. then maybe you can connect it to another piece that would, you know, uh, go along. Yeah. So it the simplest way to think of it is as you know, I give you the numbers four, seven, two, three, five, remember it, you're remembering it in sort of your working memory, it falls out of your working memory later on. And you can remember right, longer right. numbers than the, the average person can hold four pieces of information. Um, but you can remember more than four numbers because you can group them together in your mind so that it's right. like 42, 57, 35, you know, sort of like that. So most people can hold four pieces of information. A higher capacity working memory, you can hold, you know, maybe 10 or 20. I mean, there are people who are wow. truly exceptional. For example, my colleague, Terry Sanowski, is probably got a working memory capacity like a zoo. I mean, he can hold a lot in mind as he's manipulating this information. But at the same time, there are, there are people like me who have lesser capacity working memories. I would guess yeah. that my working memory capacity is like I can hold three pieces of information. If I have yeah. not had my coffee, I am holding up. <laughs> I can maybe hold one piece of information. Yep. But um, it, so, so you can hold this information in mind 
And people often think, I want to be that person with the super high capacity voice. Yeah, that sounds great. Like, give me the 20. Yeah, I'll because it that. makes it easier for you to put sets of links or make connections in long-term memory. In other words, okay. it helps you to remember things and you can grab more things and hold them in mind. So if somebody is, let's say you have this teacher and and she's going, well, there's this and this and this and this and this and this and this. The person with the high capacity working memory would be going, yeah, bring it on. I've, I've got it all in mind. But a person like me is just madly scrambling to write notes to try to put it together uh, in my own right. mind later on. But here's the trick. The trick is that people with lower capacity working memory, research has shown they can be more creative than those with higher capacity working memory. Whoa. And part of it is, you know, like you work really hard to get something in working memory. You got it. You got, you got it. Whoa, shiny. Something distracts you and something yeah. falls out of your working memory. But when something yeah. falls out, something else comes in. And yeah. that is where the creativity comes from. More than that, people often don't realize that working memory it's what you're holding temporarily in mind, but you can kind of artificially expand working memory. Okay. So the number of items you can hold in your mind is limited on average to like four pieces of information. But if you've already learned a lot about a specific topic, yeah. that topic it's the equivalent of you've got a bigger working memory capacity. It doesn't transfer yeah. to other things, but at least okay. on that topic. So for example, if I asked you to remember, let's see, слишком много знать you'd probably oh, wow. not be able to remember it very easily. That's going to be tough, yeah. But if I uh, told you, I'd like you to remember the phrase, you know too much, it's time to kill you, <laughs> which is Ooh. what the Russians used to tell me in good fun. Um, <laughs> you would easily be able to remember that phrase. And it's because you have a really good background in English and not in Russian. Yeah, right. So, so you're, whatever you're learning, if you know a lot about it already, it can help you seem to have a bigger working memory about that topic. So working memory and long-term memory kind of have this funny dancing relationship with one another. So, you know, let's relate this back to parents and or adolescents. Depending on the student's working memory capacity, different ways of teaching are going to be more effective. Uh, so, so what that means is, that if you have a, a child with or uh, with a or a teenager with a larger working memory capacity they can probably yeah. grasp fairly quickly what you're talking about if okay. they have a lesser capacity working memory you often have to kind of build it in chunks for them to be able to climb up and kind of grasp this chunk oh okay and then yeah. this one 
and they need to practice more. So remember though, that that person with lesser capacity working memory can actually in the long term with extra practice do even better and be even more creative than the person mm -hmm. with the the higher capacity working memory so for example um nobel prize winning economist friedrich hayek from all the evidence he did not have a very big working memory capacity at all he really struggled yeah. and in fact he wrote a paper about uh sort of people who learn really fast and people like him who really have to struggle and fill in the gaps and they can't remember things. But what he said was, because I, I went so slowly, I could see the gaps that the smart or the high capacity working memory people just jumped right over. Yep. So having the patience to do more practice uh, can really, I mean, your, your student, uh, the person you're mentoring is going to be helped by a lot more practice if they have a lower capacity working memory. So then the question becomes, well, how do I motivate? <laughs> how, do, how do I get my kid to, to want to practice more? Yeah, right. So that's the $64 million question. So I, I have to kind of relate what happened with our own daughters. Now, sadly, you can look at virtually any discipline there is. And I don't know whether it's learning to play a musical instrument, learning how to do a sport, learning a foreign language, learning dance, you name it, yeah. practice is an important part of becoming an expert in those and and a lot of drill you know so um interleave drill where you're giving varieties you're not just repeating the same old thing the sad thing is that education in math reform educators have somehow got this idea that practice in math kills creativity and kills students desire and interest in learning mm. nothing could be further from the truth i mean if you look at it super superficially you can say oh yeah yeah they had to practice and they didn't like it that day right. but every discipline everything you learn requires some practice and sometimes it's kind of boring you're not always going to like it. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And so it's really, it's doing an exceptional disservice to students to say, oh, the, that practice, no, no, you don't need practice because all the neuroscientific evidence is in. You need practice, whether you're, yeah, whatever right. you're learning. Now, the challenge is that when you're learning something like how to ride a bicycle, well, you need to practice to kind of get it all figured out how to do it. But you can actually see other kids riding around on their bicycles, and it's a big motivator. Even though practice is painful, you fall off your bike, you know, at first it's just no fun at all, but you can see other kids riding and, and it's you know, it's like, wow, that's ahead of me. All I got to right. do is kind of struggle through this part. But when you have a mental sport like math, 
it's harder to see how fun it's going to be and how interesting it's going to be. And so often we as parents or guardians or guides, we need to help students through that initial rough falling off the bicycle stage of of learning mathematics, which is really the foundation for many of the tech-based careers that are available today, or being a doctor, being an engineer, a lot of the well-paying jobs today require a, a modicum of understanding and expertise in mathematics. So if you are not encouraging your, your children to learn math, you are really, you are dramatically reducing the number of career doors that are open to them. Yeah. So for me as a parent, I realized, you know, I, by that time I was an engineer before, uh, before I had we had our our two girls. And I realized that if I wanted our girls to um, have all career doors open to them, Mm -hmm. they needed to do okay in math. So, and there's a very interesting body of research involving little girls and mathematics. Okay. And here's the interesting thing. If you take little girls and little boys What are the differences in their abilities to learn math? Zero. There's no difference. They can excel equally in learning math. But where the difference is, is in in verbal skills. As it turns out, testosterone can inhibit or kind of lower early on for a little while students of verbal abilities. So that means that little boys, they can do just as well as little girls at math, but they're behind verbally at that same age, whereas little girls do just as well as little boys, but they're actually even better verbally. Mm. So that means a little girl can look inside herself and go, oh, you know, they're telling me to follow my passion. Well, you know, passions develop about what you're good at. I'm better at verbal things. So off I'll go, I'm going to do the verbal kinds of things because it's easier for me. And whereas a little boy would look inside himself and say, oh, you know, I'm better at analytical kinds of things because he is, even though both little boys and little girls have on average the same capabilities in analytical and mathematical skills. Yeah. So, so I knew that my daughters could very easily fall into this, you know, I'm so good verbally that they would, you know, neglect that math part. And in fact, our older daughter, I mean, she's, she can memorize a poem. I mean, she's like eight years old and she'd be reciting pages of poetry (laughs) and explaining the meaning to me you know I mean she's like so verbally sharp but so I thought well you know I want my girls to have all the career doors open for them Mm, so I put put them I, I knew that what they needed was more practice than what the American school system gave them okay yeah so I put them in a program called Kuman Mathematics 
And that it's such a cleverly designed system. It, it uses interleaving, spaced repetition, like all the things we know are going to be valuable in helping students gain expertise. And this is a whole different conversation, but they it builds their procedural abilities. There, there's, there's like two different sets of neural links that you want to implant in your long-term memory. And, okay. and lots of practice helps build procedural links, which helps you be able to think swiftly and intuitively and to understand mm. patterns. So anyway, so we did that for like 10 years with, with our girls. Um, and, and I don't care what age your, your children are at, they can benefit. We're here today with Dr. Barbara Oakley talking about the latest neuroscience in learning and education and how parents can use these findings to give our teens the edge. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. I think what parents and grandparents and uh, guardians often don't realize is those little bits of daily practice, you know, it just seems like, am I having any effect at all? Am I truly yeah, helping my, right. my child? And, uh, and the fact of the matter, it, you, you are, it's, it's, it's yeah. just a very slow, long process. Little by little. Little <laughs> by little. People got away from the idea of rewards as a, you know, they it started to be dismissed that rewards are bad. Uh, yeah, right. Well, they're not. Actually, uh, the brain <laughs> learns through rewards. So, yeah. yes, we want children to be intrinsically motivated, but sometimes uh, a reward can help them because, to become intrinsically motivated. So let's say you're learning um, how to speak a foreign language. As you're learning that, so you memorize a vocabulary list. You have just right. memorized that using your declarative um, network. So it goes through the hippocampus and then on to long-term memory. And then you go to Spain. You're so excited. You've been studying Spanish for months and you stand in front of the taxi driver and you don't know what to say you you can he says something to you you don't understand it and you are completely tongue-tied all those phrases that you'd memorize fly out the window and you're just standing there and that is because you deposited links um in long-term memory about those words using your declarative system but you did not practice with them in an interleaved real life fashion to deposit yeah. procedural sets of links. And mm. that's what gives you that sort of real swift ease. You know intuitively what to say without having to consciously work at it. This is for yeah. language, but the same thing happens when you're learning math. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get access to all the interviews I've conducted, as well as new episodes weeks before the general public. It's completely affordable, and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening.